Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. I hope that you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. It's a big show, so let's get right at it. Later on, we're going to meet Tegan and Sarah. They're the Grammy and Academy Award-nominated identical twin sisters behind the earworm Everything is Awesome from the Lego Movie and many, many other hits. But we're not talking about music today with them. We're here to chat about their latest project, a new television show on Amazon Prime based on their memoir, high school. We'll get to that in just a little while. First though, let's meet Douglas Stewart. His first novel, Shuggy Bane, won a shellful of literary awards, including the Booker Prize in 2020. It told the story of an alcoholic single mother and her children living in a Glasgow tenement in the 1990s. His new novel, Young Mungo, centers on a romance between two teenage boys, one Protestant, one Catholic. It is a gripping and revealing story about the meaning of masculinity, the push and pull of family, the violence faced by so many queer people and the dangers of loving someone too much. In this interview, we talk about growing up in Glasgow, about how writing became his second career, and why he named his main character after the patron saint of Glasgow. Douglas Stewart joined me via Zoom. Writing is your second career. You spent decades as a senior fashion designer for major companies. Are there things that you learned from the career in fashion that you apply to your work as a novelist? Yeah, I think it really was a case of I had to bring everything I learned in fashion because I, I didn't know anything else. Um, <laughs> and you're right, I spent about 24 years in textile and design. And and I think fashion designers have an ability to pay very close attention to fine details. Uh, we're incredibly observant and we're always telling stories. It's just very visual uh, stories. And for me, especially as a textile designer, I was very aware of the patience it took with craft to be able to sit down and apply yourself at the word at the sentence level and knowing that it would build to this tapestry ultimately and i think those were those were very good things but but in a way i was working against my fashion career because my fashion career was so spontaneous so fast so collaborative uh, it never ended. It almost never lasted. You know, it was so ephemeral in a way that what I was craving with my writing was the exact opposite of that. I wanted something very private, very thoughtful, very still, um, and to hopefully create something that endured. So in a way, I was inspired by fashion, but I was also inspired to get away from fashion. <laughs> Do you ever wonder what would it have been like if you had started writing 24 years ago instead of being uh, in the fashion industry? Oh, I think about that all the time. And and the truth is, is that there were so many things that were blocking me from that as a, as a young man. You know, uh, I grew up in one of the more deprived areas of Glasgow. And the truth was, is I didn't really read a book until I was 17 or 18. I was almost 18 mm. because I didn't have any peace in my home life or in my environment. And certainly my family weren't turning to literature in any way. So I didn't know the joy of reading. I didn't know how it could transport you and and how creative it was, actually. Um, and so by the time I discovered literature, it was because I, what really happened was my high school, the year in high school emptied out when we turned 16. So many of my peers went to go find work or, or trades or to do something else. And of the 250 kids, only 12 of us remained in high school. And so I suddenly found myself in an English class where I was the only kid. Um, and, you know, if I didn't do my homework, if I didn't read the book, there was no class. The teacher couldn't teach me. Uh, there was absolutely no hiding. And that's when really I discovered a love for literature. But it's true that in trying to uh, build a successful life for me, my teachers encouraged me away from literature, which was seen as a very middle class, very privileged uh, profession, you know, to 
to sit around all day and read books was something that the men in my life could not imagine who were steel workers or coal miners or or built ships and so instead i actually went into textiles which was seen as a very practical pragmatic scottish trade you know it's creative but there is a mill at the end of it there is a factory there is some way of manufacturing something and it was really textiles i'm actually a knitter by trade believe it or not so i can knit anything you can imagine and it's that that actually brought me into fashion you wrote uh your first novel uh, Shuggy Bane, uh, it, but it took 10 years and you were writing, I suppose, in your off hours and, you know, whenever you could find a moment here. Now comes this book, Young Mungo, uh, and it's much, it didn't take 10 years to follow up uh, the first book. Yeah, actually, Young Mungo took me about four or five years to write. Um, and people make the, have the wrong idea that I wrote it after I won the book or after Shuggy was published. And the truth is, it was actually a novel I began in 2017. I wasn't published until 2020. I didn't win the Booker until 2020. And so I'd actually been writing for an incredibly long time before I was even published. And there was many reasons for that. As you say, I was trying to, in a very demanding career, a demanding life in New York, I had to carve out time and find any pockets of time that I could. But in many ways, I was also learning my craft. I didn't have an MFA, as I said. I didn't have a circle of writer friends. And so I was my only guide and with subsequent drafts, um, you know, which is another thing that it shares in common with fashion, the, con the constant prototyping, the constant improvement, making something better always. Um, and I was learning my craft through that. You're listening to Booker Award winner Douglas Stewart on The Richard Krauss Show. His book, Young Mungo, is available now wherever fine books are sold. So it took 10 years to write Shuggy, but about the eight-year mark, Shuggy was really finished. I just didn't know where a book went next or, or what I wanted from a book. And so it went up in 20... Yeah, yeah, probably about 2016 up to the top, 2015 up to the top corner of my table. And I began what was Young Mungo. And now Shuggy was a very difficult book for me because it was 1800 pages in the first draft. It was a monster and I had no discipline. I didn't quite know the story I was trying to excavate. But Mungo, uh, which is a book that reads almost with a little bit of a thriller aspect to it, um, came out. He was very certain. It was almost like a kid I wasn't paying attention to, but that I was always thinking about in my mind. And so when he came to the page, he was he was very sure of who he was. Mungo is the name of the patron saint of Glasgow, St. Mungo. Why did you give him that name? Well, I was being a little bit cheeky and a little uh, bit. I was a little angry and it's a little transgressive because my Mungo is a 15 year old young working class man living in 1990s Glasgow. And he is a young queer man uh, at a time where there is no visibility for young gay people uh, in the UK as a whole, but also certainly within working class communities. Mm. And I was thinking very much about all these stories. This isn't a story that is the 70s, 80s and 90s. This is hundreds of years old. There's so many gay men and women who couldn't live their full lives with visibility or had to go into some sort of sexual exile or, uh, you know, or just couldn't be themselves. Uh, and I was thinking, you know, he's a very Glaswegian character, Mungo. And what is more Glaswegian than naming someone after the patron saint of the city? And I just wanted to claim that space for all queer people to say we are also here and we are also important. Um, and then as that was a decision I made, it started to form the character because St. Mungo is a very beloved saint, you know, oftentimes saints become martyrs because they are martyred. It's a very, they meet a very sticky end, but, but actually St. Mungo made four very childlike miracles. He was all about love and restoration and, 
and saving uh, things that were smaller than him, caring for things, you know, whether it was a bird or a fish or a tree or a bell. Um, he has these very childlike myths. And, and I started to infuse that kindness into my own character. The world that Mungo lives in, however, is not so kind. It's a tough uh, portrait of Glasgow that you paint here. Tell me a little bit more of how much of your own story goes into or has gone into this book. Yeah, I think I think Shaggy Bain was a much more uh, autobiographical work of fiction, meaning it drew much more on my own life. And young Mungo draws on the milieu that I grew up in, the neighborhood, the people that I loved, but it's 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 less based on my own experiences. But what I will say is I was a young um, gay man living in poverty as a, as a kid. And for most of my youth, I performed my masculinity as the main characters in the book do. Meaning that masculinity in this time and place was expressed very narrowly, even for heterosexual men. There were things you had to like, there were things you, the ways you had to behave. You had to be very strong, very certain, very assured. You couldn't uh, express yourself too much or show any vulnerability or, or sensitivity because it was perceived actually as being feminine, and that unfortunately was perceived as being weak. And so in a way, the homophobia was really related to misogyny in many ways. Um, but, you know, Mungo lives on the streets that I grew up in, and, and growing up on a housing scheme in this part of Glasgow, Glasgow is a wildly diverse city. It has extreme wealth, it has some of the oldest universities in the country. Um, it has people do, having very good lives, but, but I grew up in what you would think of as a housing project in North America. And that often has very defined boundaries, both socioeconomically and also psychologically. So I never really got to see much more of the city, the beautiful parts of the city, or the parts that were doing, uh, that were doing well and and I wanted to create a character that felt very trapped by that where the four streets that he lives upon are his entire universe and his world is slowly expanding but Mungo is involved because he has an older brother who is the leader of the Protestant gang who is the leader of a, a young gang and the gang really comes to be because the young men need something recreationally to do because there's not enough happening there and they find fighting to be fun actually uh you know, it's it's an old story. It's it's like Odysseus. They want to make their name in battle and and in legend. And just because it's working class Glasgow doesn't mean to say that's not their motivation. But Mungo is caught up in all of that, and he cannot find a way to get out. You have called this uh, novel Young Mungo uh, as answering some kind of wish fulfillment for me. Uh, that's what you've said about the book. How so? Well, when I was a young man growing up. In Glasgow, um, I felt very alone in my in my queerness, mm -hmm. and I there was nobody around me that would sort of share that identity with me or come out because they, I was bullied so badly. I was isolated uh, several times. I was beat up because of it, and and only when I became an adult did people from my past come to find me and say, "Hey, I was also gay. Hey, I was also queer," and so I never had that first teenage love as a kid. I didn't have that first love till I was much older, mm -hmm. and I'd wanted to write this story that was almost like Romeo and Juliet. It's it's not a very elegant or original idea, perhaps, but I wanted this young man to look out of a tenement window and to look across the back gardens and see another young man standing in a tenement window, and for them to almost come together through their loneliness. Um, 
because it's clear that there was so many of us there as there is in every part of the world it's just we couldn't ever connect the readers of your novels are confronted with these ideas about what manhood is and uh how it functions and how it can be reinforced can you expand a little bit more on that yeah actually for a gay man i'm fascinated by heterosexuality <laughs> which uh, which is informs all of my work it was really a central theme in shaggy bane uh about gender roles as well but when i was writing shaggy bane the very first draft was about all the harm that was done to a queer character in quite a masculine place and then i started to expand my understanding and my and my empathy and really tried to locate the origin of the hurt and i came to realize that in fact heterosexual men were held in a very narrow place because of society as well. They weren't, as we said, allowed to express a full range of emotions, but they also did incredibly dangerous jobs that could have killed them at any moment. They weren't paid very well for it. And then as a country deindustrializes much too rapidly, they're thrown to the side by the Thatcher government. And so there also was no appreciation for them. And, and the characters that I was writing about have a sort of tribal outlook because they're a group of young men who are running on these housing uh on these streets of this housing scheme and they are really sort of enforcing this code for each other this code of um hypersexuality and brutality and and violence and but also rigid masculinity because they're so afraid of being perceived as weak because if they're perceived as being weak then people will take advantage of them and I felt so sad for actually the male characters in the book the heterosexual male characters because of course every soul has the capacity for vulnerability and for poetry and for wild expression it's just the boys were never allowed to show it in any way and then you have a character like Mungo who is all of these things is just endlessly sensitive and quiet and and deeply caring he cares about the people in his life where he will self-sacrifice almost like the the patron saint and yet he can't ever show that because it's seen for men as a, as a sign of weakness and that's just a, a really fascinating construct for me and of course so much harm flows from that when you when you don't allow men to be their their full beautiful selves when you started writing uh young mungo did you know who he was going to be on the final page I didn't actually. Um, and so I think as a writer, you have to know where you're generally going with a book, but you cannot nail it to a floor um, before you go, because then it, there'll be no mystery for the writer and there'll be no mystery for the reader either. <clears throat> and one of the things is, is the characters have to tell you really who they are truly as you deepen your understanding of them. And one of the strands of plot in the book is Mungo goes to the north of Scotland with two men. Uh, because it's a very gendered world and it's seen as a very positive thing for a young boy, for a young man to be in the company of men and to learn how to camp and to fish and to set a fire or to make a campfire. And it's a trip that has disastrous and, and horrific consequences for the young man. But without spoiling it for readers, I thought Mungo was going to handle it in a very different way than the way he ultimately does in the book. I thought he was going to swallow everything that happens on that weekend with the stoicism that working class men often are forced to have just to to bear it to get up to continue on you know to to really not speak of any kind of trauma and mungo surprised even me because he 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 finds a place of extreme courage and extreme anger, actually. You're listening to Booker Award winner Douglas Stewart on The Richard Krause Show. His book, Young Mungo, is available wherever fine books are sold. In the books, 
you write in a uh, using Scottish vernacular. Why is that important to you? Uh, there are some slang words that I had to go Google just to to mm-hmm. completely get the meaning of. I in contextually, I thought I could kind of figure it out, but I wanted to make sure that I know I, I knew what I was writing about. Kind of like Irving Welsh, I think did the a similar sort of thing years ago. Um, so tell me why that was important to you. Yeah, vernacular and dialect and uh, actually the Scots language is a very uh, loaded subject in the United Kingdom because it's an empirical class system. Um, And as kids, you know, we were taught that to get on in life, we had to suppress our regional accents and our regional dialects, that we had to talk almost like a BBC newscaster. Um, You know, you would learn the poetry of Robert Burns, Scotland's Bard, and then you would be slapped if ever you spoke like him when you were out on the street. And so that sort of that, you know, confusion for a kid was was enormous. But even the character of Agnes Bain, who is identical to the women who live either side of her, who is a working class mother from Glasgow, uses that as a way to project some kind of upward aspiration. She speaks like someone who had gone to Cambridge or to Oxford, even though she should and her family should have a broad Glaswegian accent. And that was really a comment on class and a comment on uh, how people were looked down upon and other people were thought to be better. But when I was writing the novel, you know, all the books that I'd read as a young man were really written in Oxford English and were written in this standardized, uh, you know, English. And it excluded me as a as a young man because it wasn't how my people spoke and it wasn't how I thought. And and it just it felt actually quite disrespectful often. And when I was writing Shuggy Bain and then Young Mungo, I had to think, who am I writing it for? Am I going to take this story of this very honest Glaswegian family and then write it for an audience, but exclude sort of stand with the audience and look at the family, or am I going to stand with the family? And the truth is, is I find the Scots language and the Glaswegian dialect to be so funny and inventive and expressive and and just rich in hidden layers and meanings that I knew readers would are by instinct curious people. And so I know that they would find something uh, something to discover in that. But funnily enough, I think my choice to write in that style was a reason why Shuggy Bain was so rejected when it first came to be published. Well, it feels as though you are reclaiming. Mm-hmm. You're reclaiming uh, your youth in a way. You are uh, reclaiming your queerness as a youth. You are reclaiming the the language that you grew up with. And and uh, is it cathartic? Is that what it is for you? Yeah. Thank you for saying that because I think that's what I set out to do with with a with a reclaiming of everything that I felt um, I shouldn't talk about or or be. And. It is cathartic in a way, but not cathartic in the way people imagine. What has been the wonderful part of the process for me was when you write a fictional character, even if they do things that you don't agree with, you have to understand very deeply why they would do that, why that, what brought them to that point in their life and why that's the right decision for them. And for me, because there was so many traumatic things in my life, even just the poverty we lived in was hard. Um, to then go back and to consider the situation around that helped me to understand my own position and to decenter myself from my own narrative of my life. And I found a huge catharsis in that, just a deepening of understanding helped me to feel less alone in the situation. And so it's certainly also been a rewarding. At first, it was incredibly traumatic to publish something that was so personal. My books are so personal. 
Um, but ultimately, readers have rewarded me with that risk by, by sharing their own stories and connecting with me in really meaningful ways, which has also been a form of catharsis. The story may be specific, but if you look at the big, for lack of a better term, bullet points of any story, uh, any story that is told from a deeply personal place will affect other people in more universal ways. Yeah, I think that's that's incredibly true. And one of the things we spoke about distance earlier, but one of the things that distance gave me was perspective. Mm. Because actually, as a young man growing up in Glasgow, I didn't know any better. Um, we were poor, but everyone around us was struggling in their own way as well. So it was only as I became an adult and I went to university and I got some perspective and I came to New York that I could look back and think, God, this is a very proud community doing the best that they can. And this is an interesting story that we never get to share with people. And so even in that sense, the distance and the perspective were, were really important for me to recognize that my specific story was a universal story. You've been listening to Booker Award winner Douglas Stewart on The Richard Krause Show. His book, Young Mungo, is available now wherever fine books are sold. Tegan and Sarah are the Grammy and Academy Award-nominated identical twin sisters behind the earworm hit Everything is Awesome from the Lego Movie and many, many other songs that you know and love. Their 10th album, Cry Baby, comes out this month, but we're not here to talk about the music today. Well, not exactly. I caught up with Tegan and Sarah to talk about High School, the new Amazon Prime drama based on their memoir of the same name. Told through a backdrop of 90s grunge and rave culture, the series is the story of finding one's own identity, a journey made even more complicated when you, like Tegan and Sarah, have a twin whose own struggle and self-discovery so closely mimics your own. Tegan and Sarah, join me via Zoom. What happened to your eye? My sister punched me in the face. Are you guys twins? No. Yes. We've had to share everything. Maybe this is an opportunity for you to make your own friends. Did we get tired of dropping everything for her? I'm not dropping everything. It's more like I'm waiting. Let's talk about uh, the stars of the show. Um, they're TikTok stars. I wasn't familiar with them, but you found them online. This is kind of one of those amazing stories that that you hear. It's like being discovered at the counter at Schwab's drugstore in Hollywood <laughs> in the 40s or something. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, um, during COVID, Sarah got me into TikTok. Um, I was sort of like, oh, I don't need to go watch videos of cats or, you know, cleaning or whatever. But um, I got really into it. And one day I found myself scrolling through TikTok and I started to see um, videos of Rayleigh, who ended up being cast to play me on the show. And, um, you know, we had been talking a lot about how to twin or how to cast twins, how to find twins that played music and acted. Um, and I, so I think probably the algorithm, I do believe our phones listen to us. So I believe probably the algorithm <laughs> heard us as we were sort of exploring how the hell to find twins. And um, I sent Sarah a couple videos. One was of Rayleigh giving a tour of her vehicle, like her car. And like, this is very popular on TikTok where people will be like, Hey guys, um, I'm at work. And so this is what my office looks like, you know, that, and it was very much like I was when I was a teenager. And so I sent to Sarah and Sarah kind of went deep dive and looked at stuff. And, um, and then we started texting them to Clea, you know, um, who was, uh, you know, writing and directing and, and, and helped develop the show with us. And, um, and she rightfully was like, terrified because she was like they're amazing they're perfect but they haven't acted they haven't sung before 
so, you know, we followed the proper protocol and did a really wide casting net. And, um, you know, we were, but we basically one day Sarah wrote the team at, you know, Amazon and IMDb and Clea and we we're like, where's the twins? Like, where's our TikTok twins? And so they were like, we can't find them. We can't get a hold of them. And Sarah made a video of herself on TikTok and put it up and said, help us find these twins. And, uh, you know, by the end of the week, they'd auditioned and we were all obsessed with them. And no, it was the... Well, they did. Yeah, I think it was about when they came down to L.A. It was like right away. And Sarah, what was it? Uh, what was it about them that that grabbed you so much? The first video that Tegan sent me was of Rayleigh, and I remember like almost immediately, like because Rayleigh was like narrating or she was saying something to the camera, and I was like that is Tegan in high school. Like Tegan used to always have the camera and she was always narrating like, and bugging me, you know, like, uh, Sarah, what are you eating? Sarah, what are you reading? And then, and then, you know, like, this is my chair. This is my closet. This is my guitar. Like she would always be doing that with the camera. And I saw Rayleigh pop onto screen and she was doing that same thing, you know, really like, um, really, charismatic, really engaged with the viewer, you know, whoever was watching the yeah. video. And then season was sort of playing the straight man, you know, like always sort of looking a bit demure or like a little annoyed that Rayleigh was asking her questions. And I was like, this is our dynamic, you know, and instead of having to sort of teach that or, you know, inform that with the, with the performance of the show, I just kept thinking, oh my God, these, they, they already do what we do so naturally. You're listening to Tegan and Sarah on the Richard Krause show. Their show high school debuts on Amazon prime on October 28th. Um, and they're just, they're absolutely adorable. They're so watchable, so charismatic, so, um, so believable as, as these characters. And, uh, and I mean, I just, I think they bloomed on screen. They're just amazing. Like amazing. Were you at all concerned that you are giving your personal story over to other people to make you involved with it, obviously, but it's a TV show. It's different thing. It's not like writing a book, which your book had kind of a diary feel to it. Almost. This is a different thing. And did you ever feel like, Oh, we're going to lose control of our own story. I mean, I don't think that we would have done it if we were afraid mm. of losing control. We definitely set ourselves up. I mean, we partnered with Clea because she's a friend of 15 years and we trusted her. She's a queer woman from the 90s. We felt that we'd found a trusted person to, to help us adapt it. And Clea, like from the day she read the book, she called us and said, don't just sell this to somebody. Don't just option this, okay. like be involved. So I think we went in knowing that we were going to have a say. Obviously, we're not the showrunners and we did not want to write the show. And so, you know, while we gave sometimes obnoxiously like large amounts of notes <laughs> about everything, we were always, always coming at it from a place of like protect the story, protect the people in the story. And also, you know, we lived it and and we think we can be an asset. And I think, I think, um, you know, Clea and, and, and Laura Kidrell, who were the, you know, both wrote on the show. I think that for the most part, they were very patient with us and they heard us out. And even when they didn't take the feedback we gave them, they tried to understand where we were coming from and, and make sure that the story did follow 
like reality and did feel true to us. And that like the portrayals of our parents, for example, if they're going to, they're going to fictionalize that, that at least they still live within the ethos and of, of who our parents were. Mm-hmm. So I, th- I think we did get really lucky in that sense, but it is terrifying. You know, like I'm scared. None of our friends have seen the show or parents haven't seen the show yet. You know, you're, this is our, our career and our life. And, and now all of a sudden we're, we're, as Sarah said the other day, we've pushed the goalposts back and we're including them now. And that's scary. Like they don't get, they didn't get to give notes on scripts, you know? So it's, it's like, hopefully nobody disowns us. (laughs) How did you approach the people closest to you in your life who are now about to become characters on a television show and say, this is what's happening? I mean, with the book, I will say we we went out directly to everyone in our life. Many of the friends captured in our story are are still friends to this day. So it was pretty straightforward. We we essentially sought consent, you know, from everyone in our life. Right. Um, we let uh, the, you know the primary people in our story, including our parents. Um, we let them read the book. Um, we let them sign off. Um, you know, so there was, you know, there was a lot of protocol and legal protocol that we followed um, in order to make sure that we wouldn't run into any issues. When it comes to the to the TV show, you know, we really um, we have emphasized to our friends and family that you know these characters are. Um, inspired by versions of um, the people that were in our book and in our real life, there are um, there are so many changes and and sort of composite characters. You know, there's storylines from our book, but these characters are sort of new. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, Tegan and Sarah are not new. These Tegan and Sarah remain the sort of art, main artery through which the storytelling happens. But um, but you know, like um, for example, in in the book. Um, I have a I have a secret girlfriend who is my best friend. And on the TV show, I have a secret girlfriend who is my best friend. You know, so there's there's you know, there are parallels from from the book and from my real life. And because we had consent with the book, we sort of feel confident that that the people in real life will be comfortable with it. Um, Like Tegan said, so much, so much attention and um, and detail was uh, paid to our story and to our our feelings and opinions when we were making the show. So I feel really confident that most people will watch this show and feel like we've really handled um, handled the story tenderly and and are not exploiting anyone. Or um, this is not like our book is probably pu- probably pushed the boundaries more than the TV show. And so I think actually our mom's probably going to be really happy because she felt like her parenting <laughs> didn't come out very well um, in the book. But I think right. on the TV show she's very good on the show. Yeah. You know, yeah. so. in the book you said you didn't want to add your adult perspective to the story. Yeah. Yeah. And so tell me about that in regards to the television show. When we were developing the series with Clea and in our first, you know, conversations with her, one of the things that we really loved that Clea had in mind was that the show wouldn't be just from our perspective. Um, you know, we in different episodes, you do see Tegan's perspective and then Sarah's perspective, which is similar, of course, to the book. But for Clea, how she felt that this would expand and live and and succeed in the TV world is to actually expand the universe and 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 check in with the perspective of our mom or check in with the perspective of the best friend. So, you know, over the course of the eight episodes, you do get 
um, the perspective of those people and their storylines are really developed. And I think it's probably the major difference between our memoir and the show. It's like, cause I do think we mostly managed to stay in memoir, right. And not write other people's perspectives. And in the show, that was the biggest challenge was Clea and Laura had to fill in those people's perspectives without knowing them. So, you know, they were constantly asking us like, what would your dad do? And what was he like about this? And, you know, but ultimately, I think those are the characters that end up feeling the most fictionalized to me only because she really is. They really had to fill them out, you know, themselves. And I think um, and I think that is for the magic of television. And I think it'll end up making the story stronger and more universal and more relatable. Um, but I do think, you know, it was still really important to us that you you get the vibe of who we were and what we thought and the torment and the depression and the anxiety and like all those things too. And I think that they did a great job with that. And I, um, you know, I, one of the things that we said to season and Rayleigh, like the first couple of days we were on set was like, this isn't a biopic. Like you're not pretending mm -hmm. to be us, you know, like nobody is there. It's not the new Weird Al movie, which by the way, I cannot wait to see. Like they're too. not, you know, like they're like season really like teens are the most like, but everybody else kind of just like looks like what they look and like it, it just for me what I think is so marvelous about watching the show and watching watching them on screen is that you do see their dynamic and that was why it was so important to us that we found identical twins and it was so important us to, to find identical twins we're still searching for who they're going to be in the world and how their relationship works and what they're going to do when they grow up like they had the energy of us in high school when we were like kind of think we know what we want but we're not sure and I think that that's what they bring to the screen and like other actors would have probably like watched video of us and like tried to imitate us but they don't like we were like bubbly and gregarious and loud and like and they're not there's like this very like tortured but methodical sweet performance that they give and I like that it's it almost like it's like captures more of their the internal world that we wrote about in the book and so yeah, I don't I like I I do think there are going to be some like major differences. People who read the book like 90 times are going to be like, wait a second. That's not how it happened. But that's the magic. You know, it's it's yeah. it's its own complimentary piece, I think. Were you just playing guitar? Yeah. A song you wrote? Can I hear it? Fine. What's it like for you uh, to watch the show? I mean, it's very surreal. <laughs> and, um, you know, there were times actually I was on set almost every day mm. that we shot. Um, and there were days where I felt really present and really um, engaged with the process of making a TV show. And then there were days where I would quite literally be sitting in the chair in my chair crying like just moved by scenes or performances especially stuff between season and Rayleigh um I think that's like Tegan has already said that's the stuff that most closely obviously mirrors our own story and you're listening those, to Tegan and Sarah on the Richard Krause show their show high school debuts on between Amazon season Prime and Rayleigh on October really 28th. rattled me sometimes like I found myself sort of grieving um our adolescence you know that intimacy that we had as teenagers those those moments right on the precipice of becoming adults where our lives were going to change forever even just simple things like i'm watching 
watching season and really and and the parents I felt like a longing to return to my childhood. I was like, I would give anything to spend one day with my mom and Bruce and Tegan, you know, in the house. Like I found myself really moved by those moments. And, um, and yeah, and just really as a twin, I've never really seen twins captured in film or television that look like us or looked Mm -hmm. like us or had experiences like us, Um, not just visually, but, you know, the complication of being queer, um, you know, being having these internalized feelings that we weren't comfortable sharing yet. Uh, you know, the moments, I'm not sure how much of the show you've seen, but, you know, the first musical episodes floored yeah. me, just gutted me. You know, they, I had never seen girls on screen doing what we did as teenagers, you know, sitting with our guitar and trying to figure out how to look, play guitar watching Kurt Cobain, you yeah. know, on MTV or whatever. Like those, I've never seen those moments come alive on screen before. And so to sit on set and watch them happen was just just profound actually at times and um, and really, really healing um, for me. And I just, I found the whole experience like really, um, really creatively satisfying. It was super cool. And, and Tegan, has this whole process between writing the book and now the television show Ben Cathartic? Well, I think similar to writing the book, Sarah and I did have different experiences. Like Sarah found the writing of the book really cathartic because, you know, I think her experience in high school was was more challenging. You know, she, she for for a spectrum and, you know, um, diverse set of reasons. Um, and so I think that accordingly, the show was also sometimes in a weird, weird way harder for Sarah and also more cathartic for Sarah. I think... Um, as our, our work therapist says, you know, um, I don't know if I always agree with her, but she one time jokingly said in therapy, like she was like, Tegan's just not that deep. And I don't know that that's true. I do believe I'm a pretty deep person, but I do believe that some of my, some of this process for me probably was cathartic, but I think mostly the process is just really like, I think I focus more on like the work and how exciting it is. And like, it's just been like a really blisteringly strange, exciting new time to just, get into an entirely different industry and create something out of this book and like the cast, all of it, it's just been so magical. So I think for me, I was less, well, to be honest, I think I wasn't on set thinking about my experience. I wasn't like, I'm watching me as a teenager based on my book. I I didn't necessarily go to the fantasy place. I went more to the like, wow, there's so many people on set and this is how set works. And that's a line producer and a line producer does this. And like, and that's, that's, that's Sarah and I in a nutshell in a weird way. Like some of our personality is like, we complement each other in that way. There's like not too much of either of that in the relationship. So, um, but I do, I will say that like just zooming out, I think it's beautiful to be a part of a TV show about queer girlhood and about artistry and creativity because we don't see it. You've been listening to Tegan and Sarah on the Richard Krause show. Check out their show high school when it debuts on Amazon prime on October 28th. And while you're at it, why not give their new album cry baby a listen? It's available now wherever you buy fine music. thanks to Tegan and Sarah. Also, a big thanks to Stuart Douglas. His book, Young Mungo, is available at bookstores and online across the country and across the world. Of course, as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, stay weird, and we'll talk again soon.